You know, I love the old uh, Sprint telephone, you know, the cell phone commercials, if you remember them from years ago. Uh, they're talking about how important words are and making sure you get the clear messages. And one of the commercials, I have the babysitter. He's saying, well, when you called, you said flower the kids. And remember the parents, I said shower the kids. And the kids are all sitting there, flowered. And, you know. and there's Kyle Petty, who is walking into his dining room. And he said, I thought you said dinner for two. Or excuse me, I, said, I thought you said dinner for crew. And he's got his whole pit crew there. His wife had meant dinner for two, and she's got a candlelit dinner and everything for the crew and everything. So, you know, words are important, aren't they? Have you ever been misunderstood, you know, on the phone or just one or two words? Changes the total meaning of everything. How important are words to us? Well, when you're talking about the Bible, words are very, very important. We are talking here about issues of salvation, of heaven and hell and eternity, truth about God and about Christ and about end times, things that are, we are commanded to do. Our very souls are anchored to the words of the Bible that we are given here. So are the words of the Bible, are they accurate? Are they without error? Well, that is a question of inspiration. Are all of the words of the Bible inspired? Well, obviously we know that human authors were used to pen the words of the Bible. Well, how do we know that these human authors, that those words that they wrote down, that they were actually from God, and not just some of their own ideas that were mixed in there? Well, we have been kind of on and off studying some theological issues, and we've come to the subject of bibliology. And today we're going to deal with our second question in bibliology, and it deals in inspiration. The word inspiration, it's the Greek word, it means uh, theoneustros, it means theo being God, neustros meaning breathed. When we are saying that the word of God is inspired, we are saying it is God breathed. We're going to talk today about what that means, that the Word of God is God-breathed. I want us to understand the power of that truth, that whenever, every single time you get up in the morning or you take a break and you open up the Word of God, and you've got it on your lap, and you begin to read words, and there's that stirring within your heart, or that is conviction that comes upon you, or that inspiring you to do something for his kingdom. It's because these words, they're not just words of man, they're not just the best religious words of men, but these are the words of an almighty God who is speaking not just to our head, but he is speaking to our heart. There's power in the truth of the inspiration of the word of God. And we're going to look at that today, of why that is so important for us to, to understand and be reminded of that. Even if we've been Christians for a long time and, and, and we, we say we know this truth, do we really know this truth? Do we understand the truth of, of God's word being inspired? Now, some of you will remember years ago, um, Reader's Digest has a thing where they would take you know, great novels that were really long, you know, like Gone with the Wind, and they'd have a condensed book of it. And they tried to do this with the Bible years ago. They tried to have a Reader's Digest condensed Bible. And in it, they took out all the genealogies, 
you know, some reciting of the laws, the temple construction, other portions of Scripture that when you're having your devotions, you know, you're, you're kind of struggling through. And they just kept the easy-to-read parts. Well, the question is, why was that so wrong for them to do that? The answer is inspiration. Each word of the Bible has been given by God, and each word is equally inspired. Whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether you're talking about the words of Jesus Christ or it's words that were penned by Paul or by Peter or John, whether it's the exciting stories that we love to read, you know, like Daniel and the lion's den, whether it's even the most mundane type of things like the genealogies. Each one of these words are God-breathed. They're important that God has for us. And we don't just pick and choose the ones that we like and that we're interested in. They all have been given for a reason. We might ask the question, why do we discourage people from using an interpretation of the Bible, not a translation? And hopefully you know the difference. You know, there are many translations of the Bibles. You've got the King James Version, the NASB, the um, New American Standard Bible. I guess that's what NASB is. Um, the NIV Bible. I don't know. There's probably... You know, there's probably a hundred, but, but you want to have a translation of the Bible where it be a word-for-word -word type of translation, not an interpretation of the Bible. And the interpretation of the Bible may have some place for us, and, and, and probably the most common one is the Living Bible, um, but it's the translation of the Bibles that we look at being inspired, a word-for-word, -word, not an interpretation where I think this is what God was meaning when he said that, and so I write that down. Why is it so important that we... Look at the words of our Bible. Why are they so important to us? Well, let me, let me talk about a little bit about the importance of inspiration. Let me give you some examples of why inspiration is so important. Why just even the smallest detail in the Bible is important. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we'll go ahead and we'll put this up here for you. You know the verse. We're coming into Christmas. We'll reference this verse. It says, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that seems pretty straightforward of what it's teaching. That in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That this Bible that we had, this isn't just, you know, words concept, but the very essence of God has, is being communicated in this Bible. And it's going to go on, it's going to tell us in John chapter 114, it says, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten full of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you put John chapter 1, one of the powerful teachings of John chapter 1 is, is, is the word has been from the very beginning, the word is, is, is God, and that word became flesh, and we know in the person of Jesus Christ. If you put that all together, it is clearly teaching that Jesus Christ is God. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses, they do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe he's a great prophet. They believe he is a created being by God, that he came into existence at his birth. And what they do with this verse, John chapter 1, verse 1, is they insert a small participle called, with it, puts an A in it. So it reads, not the word was God, but that the word was a God. Just one small letter changes the whole meaning 
the whole concept, the whole power of the truth of something that God was trying to teach. In Matthew chapter 22, remember the Sadducees are trying to trip Christ up. This is towards the end of his earthly ministry here. And they bring him kind of that, that impossible um, situation where, you know, one, one guy marries a woman and he dies and the brother is supposed to marry, you know, the next brother is supposed to marry her and raise up children, but he dies. And seven of them are married to her and none of them have children. And, you know, they're, they're trying to disprove the resurrection, saying, hey, when they get into heaven, now whose wife is she really? Remember what, what Christ says? He says in, 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 in Matthew 22, he says, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, and here's how he's going to answer them. He says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that very simple concept of, of, of the, the tense of the verb, I am. I am still the God of them. I am the God of all of them, the living and of the dead. He is teaching the concept of the resurrection. If you just change the tense of that verb to I was versus I am, it changes the whole meaning and the whole theological truth. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Christ made this proclamation. Remember, this is in the very beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. He says, For verily, verily, I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Not one jot and one tittle. That's like saying, you know, every I is going to be dotted, every T is going to be crossed. Every single word is going to happen just as God has said. In Revelations chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecies of this book. In other words, you just read the book of Revelations, and here's his summation at the end. Every one of you who have read these prophecies, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Do you think God cares about what we do with his words? His God-breathed words that he has given to us? To the point he says, well, if you add anything to these prophecies, all of these plagues, I'm going to put them down upon you. If you take away anything from these prophecies, I'm going to take away your place from the tree of life. I mean, this is how serious God is about it. And, you know, in the Old Testament, in fact, they, they took this very, very seriously. Um, if you're reading in the... the, the uh, the Gospels, it talks about the scribes. And, you know, sometimes we don't even think about what the scribes were. Well, the job of a scribe was literally, they didn't have printing presses back then. They didn't have copy machines. Literally, they had to rewrite God's word. And what a scribe would do, that was their job, to, to protect the purity of the word of God. And so what they would do is on a, every... In the Hebrew alphabet, every single letter in the Hebrew alphabet is given a number. And so when they would copy a line, they would copy it on a page, they would add up those numbers and whatever they came to, 127, that line, and then they would meticulously count all the words that they had just written out, add up all the letters and make sure that it was exactly 127, that they hadn't changed it. I mean, that's how meticulous they were about God's word and about keeping the purity of the truth of God's word. 
Very simply, on this subject of inspiration, I mean, God takes it serious, his word, and we should take it serious as well. And so for the rest of our time here, I want to answer some of the the questions of what and and how and and why and who and all those sorts of questions uh, concerning inspiration here. Again, some of this, you know, for you, for myself, is going to be reminding us, and it's good to be reminded of the power of the word of God, and sometimes we take this for granted. For some of you, this is going to be new information. And, you know, and, and I'm hoping to shore up your, your understanding and, and, and just the, the awe that you have for this word and what your willingness to give your life to this word. So let's talk about the who, what, how, why. Let's talk about the what first. I want to put a verse up here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16 and 17. It says this. He says, all scripture, talking about your Bible here, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now that verse holds a lot of truth in it. It tells us that all scripture, every book, every line, every word, he said all scripture is inspired. And that's where we get that word, uh, theonustros. It is God-breathed. All of the words. It's an outspiring of the message of God that has been given to us. God is the author. You know, the infinite God is, is the one who is behind the Bible. And it is profitable. It's been given to us. It's been given to you. It's been given to me for instruction, to profit my life to add value to my life. God wants these words, it goes on, he says to be, you know, give us doctrine. Doctrine would be accuracy of our beliefs and the thing that we, things that we anchor our lives through. He wants the word of God to be a reproof to us, a correction, you know, to bring conviction into our life, you know, to set us on the right path when we're swaying away from God. It talks about being there for righteousness, God's word is calling you and I to a higher standard, to what it means to be a child of God. God has breathed his word out to instruct us in how to be more like him. And he, his word prepares us in how to act like a Christian, you know, act like one of God's children. So that's the what. That's what the Bible does. Let's talk about the who. Who's involved in the Bible? Well, we, we've said God is. You know, he is, it is God-breathed, but obviously man is also involved in putting together the Word of God. Matter of fact, last time we were together, remember we said there are at least 36 different authors, human authors, that have, you know, that God used to, to pen the words of the Bible. Um, some people teach the diction theory the dictation theory, excuse me, that God simply dictated his message to these men. So whether, you know, they were, you know, having a dream or in a trance state, you know, like Paul often wrote about that, you know, God gave them the words and and they just wrote these words down as God was giving them. Kind of like a a CEO might call a secretary in and, you know, and speak words and the secretary is, you know, is just there to write down the words that the CEO says. Um, You know, that's one theory. But then again, if that would be true, how do you, uh, you know, how do you explain the different styles of writing? I mean, if, 
If, if you study the Word of God for very long, you'll see that each book, each author has a very distinct style. Paul, he writes kind of in a circulatory style where he'll actually hit a subject and he'll go around, go out from it, and then he'll come right back to it and hit it again and, you know, and reinforcing it throughout his letters. If you look at Amos, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, um, his, his vocabulary, he was a peasant. You know, he was a farmer. And his vocabulary of his writing, very simplistic Hebrew words. If you look at Luke, you know, he was a physician. And all through the book of, of Luke, you'll, you'll see medical analogies and metaphors, metaphors used that would have kind of come out from his medical background. Well, if God was simply dictating his word to these people, then it would have the same style. You know, because God would be the author, they would just be the means by which it was written down. So the question is, how does inspiration take place with God and man? How do those two things come together to bring us the word of God? Well, let's go to 2 Peter. We'll put this up on the, the PowerPoint. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for no prophecy, it's talking about the word of God here, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's not by the will of man. In other words, you know, Paul didn't suddenly think, oh, I, I need to you know, write a letter and I need to you know, get some of these beliefs and truths and my things down for the church so you know, that they can you know, be foundational in, in the forming of their churches. Paul never did that. He didn't come to that place to it. It's not by the will of man, but by the will of God. It's not a product of man. They didn't write it, and then suddenly God blessed it. Oh, I like your writing. Let me put my hand of blessing upon it. No, these, these are working together. It says, holy men of God spake. I mean, they were, men were obviously the vehicles by which it was given, by which it was penned. And they were moved, literally, uh, that word moved in the Greek, it means they were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit as they worked. The Holy Ghost, it's a special work of the Spirit. And he was moving in men, guiding, directing their thoughts, not independent of who the men were, their backgrounds and their styles. As a matter of fact, a lot of times I think you know, God chose certain men to write certain things he wanted communicated because of their backgrounds, you know, because of the style or the way that they would have been. He, he worked within that. Um, a good example of that is the four Gospels. The four Gospels... You know, they're written by four different men. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of these Gospels is written to a totally different audience. Matthew is written to the Jews to talk about the birth of Christ and to introduce them to their Messiah and to, to show that he is their Messiah, that he is their Savior. And so in the book of Matthew, you're going to see there are a lot of Old Testament references, a lot of quoting from the Old Testament prophecies to show that Christ was the answer. Mark, he wrote his book to the Romans. And, you know, the Romans were very action-oriented. So, so Mark's writings to the Romans were a, a lot more definitive. Matter of fact, the word immediate, immediately he went and did this, immediately he went and did that. It's used over 40 times in, in, the, in the book of Mark. Luke was written to the Greeks. Greeks were very analytical 
very articulate. You know, they're very much put, you know, the, the, the aspiration of the mind and the, the talking about philosophies. And, and so you'll see he is very precise in the detailing of the things that he writes. The book of John is written to the Gentiles. In other words, it's written to the whole world. And, and the book of John of the Gospels is probably the simplest of all the Gospels because the reader doesn't need any foundation in the Old Testament. The reader doesn't have to understand Jewish laws. The Gospel is presented very, very simply to the whole world. And so you got four different men writing about Jesus Christ and about his time here on earth, writing to totally different audiences, totally different styles, and yet all four of the Gospels are in perfect harmony with each other. They don't contradict one another. Why? Because God breathed. You know, God is moving in the midst of these men. And so while the men still retain some of their style and their vocabulary, and you might even say some of their personality might come out in the writing, these things are, are, are perfect because the one moving these men along were the Holy Spirit. Consider John chapter 14, uh, verse 26. Um, Christ is preparing his disciples for he's about to go away. You know, he's going to be crucified and buried, resurrected, and ultimately ascend back into heaven. And he says in John 14, 26, he's preparing the disciples. You know, you're going to be left here. You're going to be carrying this work on. And he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Well, that's an important verse for us. I mean, that would explain how, you know, in these long messages like the Sermon of the Mount, which covers, you know, three chapters for us, you know, how are these word perfect? Well, because the Holy Spirit, whom Christ will send in his name, will bring to their mind these things. That explains to us how an author recorded an event that he wasn't even present for. Luke has uh, the, the incident of you know, going up to the Mount of Transfigurations. Luke was not one of them that was taken up to the Mount of Transfigurations. How does he know what happened you know, up on that mountain? Well, they're moved along by the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm going to send them into place. He will bring these things to your mind. So they're not out there on their own. Obviously, God is, is working in them. In John chapter 16, verse 13, he goes on, he says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Okay, you know, he will guide you. This is what is happening. God breathed. The Holy Spirit is guiding men that penned his word. The final question I want us to look at is why? Okay, let's circle right back to why is this so important to us? Why is it so important that we hold that every single word, every single thought, every single intent of the Bible is inspired? Someone might say, well, isn't it enough that I just genuinely accept that this book is from God. You know, I just, okay, the Bible is, is God's book to us. Why is it so important that we even go down a couple more layers in that, into our, into our understanding of how this book has been given to us? You know, doesn't it matter? Isn't it enough that I just say, 
you know, I believe this book is, is from God? Well, the answer to that really is no. If Christians do not hold to the word of inspiration, we're going against what God taught. God wanted to make it very, very clear and wanted us to understand and believe and wholly be able to give ourselves to this word. I mean, if I just have a general belief that, oh, I believe, you know, this is from God. If I just have a general belief in that, um, I mean, sin has a strong pull. I mean, Satan has a strong pull in our, in our lives and in our culture. God wants to have us to have just as strong of a conviction that even when something in his word goes against what culture is saying, that we will stand firmly on the word of God. If Christians don't hold to, to that word of inspiration, we will culturally change God's word. And over time, we're going to have a different totally different word and I mean I have seen people who are a lot smarter than me which are probably a lot of people um, I mean they're debating all these things about the word and the nuances and all of that and and I might roll my eyes and ah you know why do we get inside no that's important the holding to the truth of the word of God because if we change it just a little and our next generation changes it just a little and the next generation changes it just a little I'll give you an example of that um, it, well, it was just a few years ago that a new Bible came out, came out called the Gender Neutral Bible. And it, some of you will remember it. It removed the phrases of male and female terms. So a verse that it says is appointed unto to, to man once to die and then the resurrection, it would be changed to it's appointed unto all to die and once the resur resurrection, after that the resurrection. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal because God says what he means. And if God wanted it to say all, he would have said all. But he used a, 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 a particular pronoun or a description, male or female. He used it for a purpose, for a reason. And when we put ourselves under the authority in our culture to say, well, this will be culturally more acceptable if we just remove the male and the female. Folks, just because our culture wants to eliminate gender differences doesn't give us the authority to culturally translate the Word of God. There are a lot of issues on this, on, on why it is so important that we hold truth to the Word of God. Uh, there's a, there's a, an individual in our church right now that is dealing with a board that they're, they're sitting upon, and the board... You know, it's supposed to be a faith-based board and Christians on the board, and they were talking about some moral issues and having to, you know, write them into to the, the business model, I believe, and, and, and all those things. And, 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 you know, this individual in the church wrote a letter, a very biblical letter, you know, citing Scripture, quoting Scripture on the moral stance that we're supposed to have as a Christian. And he was sharing with me the response that he got from the letter. And I can't remember the exact words, but they were kind of like, well, you follow Paul, but I'm going to follow Christ. And you see what people can do that you can pick and you can choose? You know, who that you will follow and, and, and who that you will, you know, you like those words, but while those words are, make us feel uncomfortable. Well, we don't change those things because they make us feel uncomfortable. They are there because they are truths that, that we will be judged by. There are things in there that God is going to hold us, that he wants us to have. So the inspiration of Scripture is tremendously important for us to understand and for us to follow 
and us to practice. So again, why is this so important? This, this whole study that we're having on the Bible, why is it so important? Well, it's because we are quickly becoming a very, and I'll, I'll just say it very bluntly, we are becoming a very lazy generation of Christians. Christianity today, as a whole, doesn't seek a depth of the knowledge or the truth from the Word of God. We look at churches all around us that you know, are, are, are focused on numbers and are focused on growing. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize the churches, but if you go very deep, you know, there's the things, not the truth of the Word of God that is pulling it together, but other things, programs, music, all of those things, feelings that are so important. And as a result, that Christians are drawn to that. Um, when I was at Grand Rapids School of Bible and Music, I was in a homiletics class. <clears throat> and I've shared this before. Um, in the homiletics class, you know, we all took turns preaching. And everyone would listen, and then, you know, the, the, the teacher would comment on it, and give us a grade on our sermon, and help us out with that. Um, we had a, an individual uh, in that class, and um, uh, Brenda will remember him, John Check. Remember John? He's a, he's a, he's a pastor today. He, he had a wonderful gift of speaking, of being able to preach. And if there was anyone in the class that I would have said, hey, I really like to, I want to be there when he preaches, it would have been John Check. John just had that ability to move people. And the interesting thing about it is, you know, until the end of the year, and, and John is getting a C in the class. And I don't understand it. I mean, you know, others of us, we're getting A's, we're getting B's on our sermons. He's getting a C's. And, and finally, the professor, you know, in class talked about that. And, and he very honestly said, John has that ability to move people. So if you are not accurate in what you are teaching, you will move people to error. And unfortunately, our generation wants to be moved. We want to feel. We want to experience. We don't want depth. Just move me. I'm not even concerned where you move me. But I just want to be moved. Tell me what, you know, to do in an exciting way, what you're doing. And based on your excitement and the way that you presented and all of that, you know, I, you know, I don't want to dig into the word myself. You, you get me excited about it. You know, problems come then when something more exciting comes, more moving comes along. The problem is we don't have any depth. And again, there, there's nothing wrong with feelings, emotions. There's nothing wrong with styles and excitements. And probably the greatest sin that we have within the church is making God's word boring because it is so exciting. But we need to anchor ourselves to the word of God as God's revelation. Th this is inspired. Not what I say about this. It's not inspired. It might be true what I say about it. I hope it is. But it is not inspired. But this is. This is inspired. What's happening this morning, what I say about that, is not inspired. Hopefully, again, hopefully it's true. Remember one of the, the, the early churches that says in Acts chapter 17, verse 11? I think it was talking about you know, the Berean Christians. And he says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to, we, to see whether these things were so. I mean, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever left the service here and checked out anything I've said? 
I know Scott has. <laughs> Scott does it while I'm preaching. Here I see him, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But how many of you? I don't want you to take it just because I say it or because somebody might say it and have a really good illustration and visual or, or style with it. That's not what makes it true. What makes it true is the Word of God and the accuracy. And we should not become lazy to just let other people do our thinking. We should be digging into the Word of God. We should be studying it for ourselves. We should be questioning things ourselves. Um, you know, those of you who teach Sunday school, I, I, I guarantee you every single one, would, one of them would say that they probably get the most out of their Sunday school lesson because they've had to dig into it versus those who, you know, come and, you know, just participate in it and listen to it. When you have to study, when you have to dig in, you know, it, it just takes us to new layers. And that's what God wants you to, to have in your relationship to the Bible, to his word, to his revelation to you. So I want to I leave you with this. I want to leave you with the fact that this Bible, these words, it is a miracle. It is God-breathed. This book is perfect in every way. Every single word is inspired. This book is supposed to be the rock in which we build our lives upon. Last time together, we looked at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Then verse 26 is, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. If your faith is rooted in anything else other than the word of God, and I'm talking about there are some good things out there. Your faith shouldn't even be rooted in the church. Okay? Take that for what it is. It should be rooted in the Word of God. It's not rooted in the place that you go. It's not rooted in the programs that you're part of. Our relationship, the whole basis of our relationship and understanding comes from the Bible. And it's so easy for us to take it for granted. It's so easy for us to, you know, you know just presume upon it. You know, especially if we've been saved for a long time. You know, God wants us to build our lives, continue to build our lives on his word, on his rock. If you want to experience God, it all starts in his word. It doesn't start in programs. It starts in the word of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, I... I count it a privilege to week after week to be able to give my time to your word, to study it, to allow you to put my thoughts together, to allow us to, to be in a place like this and to be challenged. Father, it is a miracle to me, your word. And I pray, Father, for each and every one of us here that you would, you would just raise our awe and wonder of what we have. Father, that there would be a hunger for us, Lord, that we would be like the deer, you know, going to that stream constantly to be nourished, to be challenged, to be corrected, to be inspired in your truth. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a church family. Father, I thank you for a ministry that is rooted in the